Oh, Reverend Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, I do have a slight problem in giving these talks uh, because so many people seem to have read so many things that I've written. And there, is, there is a problem of just repeating things I've put in my books and pamphlets, but on the other hand, you always get someone who's come for the first time and has never read any, so I can't presume that they, they're already familiar with what I've written. That's when, you, when you're teaching, one of the first things you have to do before giving a lesson is decide upon the amount of knowledge presumed in the people to whom you're speaking. I'm teaching 11-year-old children. One of the first things I have to do after the summer holiday each year is teach them long division, which they've all learned the year before, but I can always presume that none of them at all can do long division <coughs> because they all forget it in the summer holidays. Uh, so, for the purposes of this talk tonight, uh, I shall be presuming more or less, that, that people do not know everything about the liturgy, so some of it will be fairly basic, but I don't think there'll be a great deal of harm in that. And I am approaching it from a different angle, something I haven't done before, which is the question of division, a divided liturgy in a divided church. Now, the word liturgy is one of the most frequently used and least understood terms in use among Catholics today. And this is particularly true in Catholic schools. Teachers, who are usually female, I feel bound to say, concoct what they claim to be liturgies without having the remotest idea what the liturgy is. And it is very sad to relate that, for the most part, school chaplains acquiesce meekly. I suppose I can't blame them too severely, because having taught in a school with an all-female staff, apart from myself, for 21 years, I tend to acquiesce meekly now when the, <laughs> when the ladies all gang up on me. But, and as I said, sadly, though, the chaplains come into the school and they're given what is called a liturgy, and then they perform this liturgy. And they perpetrate whatever absurdities they're ordered to perpetrate without so much as a, a whimper. I know of one very courageous priest who declined to participate in what was more reminiscent of a musical act than the Mass, and for his pains the bishop removed him from the parish and sent him elsewhere because he'd stood up to a headmistress whose own knowledge of the liturgy, from what I could gather, was somewhat less than that of Benjamin Bunny. <laughs> now, um, the most profound analysis an easily readable form of the nature of the liturgy that I know of can be found in the encyclical Mediator Day of Pope Pius XII, which I believe this Catholic Truth Society is still selling. Although it wouldn't surprise me if it had gone down the memory hole. Pope Pius XII defines the liturgy as the whole public worship of the mystical body of Jesus Christ, head and members. Thus, Acts of worship which do not form part of the official public worship of the Catholic Church as set out in her liturgical books are not liturgical. I'm not suggesting for one moment that non-liturgical worship is without value. The liturgy constitution of the Vatic Second Vatican Council reminds us, the spiritual life, however, is not limited solely to participation in the liturgy. The Christian is indeed called to pray with others but he must also enter into his bedroom to pray to his father in secret. Furthermore, according to the teaching of the apostle, he must pray without ceasing. Popular devotions of the Christian people, 
provided they conform to the norms and laws of the church, are to be highly recommended, especially when they are ordered by the Holy See. One of the most beautiful acts of worship in the school where I teach is the May Procession, during which the children process to Our Lady's Grotto reciting the Rosary. The statue of Our Lady is crowned, and while Marian hymns are sung, each child lays a bouquet at her feet. But while most certainly an act of worship, this is not a liturgical act. Our word liturgy is derived from a Greek root, meaning a public duty or service to the state undertaken by a citizen. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is used for the public services in the temple and is thus invested with a religious sense as the function of priests in the ritual of Jewish worship. Our Lord is described as the liturgos of holy things in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 2. The liturgy is his holy work for his people. And this is very, very important. The liturgy is therefore primarily not something which we do, but something which our Lord does. It is an action of Christ, an axio Christi, but an action with which his mystical body, the church, is able to unite itself. The liturgy constitution of the Second Vatican Council stressed the nature of the liturgy as a Christ-centered action in terms that could hardly be more clear or more traditional. Now, quote from the Constitution. Christ is always present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, the same now offering through the ministry of priests who formerly offered himself on the cross, but especially in the Eucharistic species. By his power, he is present in the sacraments, so that when anybody baptizes, it is really Christ himself who baptizes. The liturgy, then, is rightly seen as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. In it, full public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, by the head and his members. From this it follows that every liturgical celebration, because it is an action of Christ the priest, and of his body, which is the church, is the sacred action surpassing all others. No other action of the church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. In the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, minister of the holies and the true tabernacle. The Council is stressing here the fundamental Catholic truth that the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ did not come to an end when he ascended into heaven. He perpetuates it in his mystical body, the Church, which, in its innermost reality, is an extension of the Incarnation throughout the nations and the centuries. Our Lord has perpetuated not only his priestly office, but also the sacrifice of our redemption, to be present at Mass is, therefore, to be present at Calvary. The Mass lies at the heart of the Catholic liturgy. The Mass is Calvary made present among us each time a Catholic priest dares to ascend to the altar of God to act as the instrument of Christ, the great High Priest of every Mass. A prayer in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom evokes the profound truth that 
It is really thou who dost offer and art offered, thou who dost receive the offering and art given back to us, Christ our God. When we reflect upon the innermost reality of the Mass, that we are present at Calvary, it is hard to understand how our priests dare to ascend to the altar, or how we dare to be present before it. Quam terribilis est haecora, cries out the deacon in the Syrian liturgy, how awesome is this hour. Awesome indeed it is when our Saviour and our God is present among us as priest and victim. No one has expressed the sublime reality of the Mass in a more profound manner than Father Joseph Jungmann. In his work, The Mass of the Roman Rite, he explained, When Christ on the cross cried out his consummatum est, few were the men who noticed it, fewer still the men who perceived that this phrase announced a turning point for mankind, that this death opened into everlasting life, gates through which, from that moment on, all the peoples of the earth would pass. Now, to meet the expectant longing of mankind, this great event is arrested and, through Christ's institution, held fast for these coming generations, so that they might be conscious witnesses of that event in the last centuries and among the remotest nations, and might look up to it in holy rapture. Now, there is only one sacrifice of the Mass. Wherever it is offered, and whenever it is offered. It is, as Father Jungman expressed it, Calvary made present among us. But although there is only one sacrifice, it has been and is offered according to many different rites. A rite of Mass consists of the words and ceremonies surrounding the essential elements instituted by our Lord. The different rites of Mass evolved in a gradual and natural manner over many centuries, with prayers and ceremonies evolving almost imperceptibly. In every case, codification, that is, the incorporation of these prayers and ceremonies into the liturgical books, followed upon their development. This, thus, particular prayers and ceremonies are found in the liturgical books because they were used in the liturgy and not vice versa. This is a crucially important distinction one of Britain's greatest historians, a Protestant incidentally, Professor Owen Chadwick, remarked that liturgies are not made, they grow in the devotion of centuries. There is a very clear pattern of development in all the sacramental rites in both East and West. This pattern is well explained in The Teaching of the Catholic Church, an authoritative exposition of Catholic doctrine edited by Canon George Smith. It states, Throughout the history of the development of the sacramental liturgy, the tendency has always been towards growth, additions and accretions, the effort to obtain a fuller, more perfect, more clearly significant symbolism. Note carefully here the reference to growth, growth, additions and accretions. <coughs> Until 1969, there had been no precedent within any Catholic rite for the opposite process, that of removing prayers and ceremonies in previous use. Such an idea had been unthinkable, incompatible with the Catholic ethos. Commenting on Thomas Cranmer's liturgical revolution, 
Cardinal Francis Gasquet wrote of the reverence felt by Catholics for sacred rites coming to them with the authority of centuries. Any rude handling of such rites must cause deep pain to those who know and use them, for they come to them from God, through Christ and through the Church. But they would not have such an attraction were they not also sanctified by the piety of so many generations who have prayed in the same words and found in them steadiness in joy and consolation in sorrow. The Cardinal added correctly that the forms of public prayer are the very center and kernel of the religious life of a Christian people. Dom Fernand Cabral, the father of the liturgical movement, insisted that even the so-called archaisms of the Missal are the expression of the faith of our fathers, which it is our duty to watch over and hand on to posterity. For such quotations could be multiplied indefinitely, but it is not necessary to do so, as not even the most fervent promoter of the post-conciliar revolution in the liturgy could have the temerity to deny that the attitude that I have described here was held universally within the Church until the post-conciliar period. I will give just one more example to illustrate this attitude. The Anglican bishops had attempted to refute the final and irrevocable condemnation of Anglican orders by Pope Leo XIII in 1896. The Catholic bishops of England answered them in 1898 and condemned in the strongest possible terms the action of the Protestant reformers in omitting or reforming anything in those forms which immemorial tradition has bequeathed to us. This is what the Catholic bishops wrote. For such an immemorial usage, whether or not it has in the course of ages incorporated superfluous accretions, must, in the estimation of those who believe in a divinely guarded, visible church, at least have retained whatever is necessary, that in earlier times local churches were permitted to add new prayers and ceremonies is acknowledged, but that they were also permitted to subtract prayers and ceremonies in previous use, and even to remodel the existing prayers in the most drastic manner is a proposition for which we know of no historical foundation and which appears to us absolutely incredible. I remarked earlier that the veneration for traditional rites and their preservation as a sacred trust characterized the Church until the post-Vatican II epoch. I did not say, as many critics of the liturgical revolution would, until the Second Vatican Council. The Council Fathers voted for no more than moderate reforms which would have left untouched the ethos of the traditional rites, the Mass in particular, but, as Cardinal Heenan has testified, the experts who drafted the liturgy constitution in an ambiguous manner planned to use it in a manner which the Pope and the Council Fathers did not suspect when, <coughs> after the Council, the experts, known as the Pariti, Peritus is the Latin word for an expert advisor, when after the Council these experts intended to gain control of the commission which would be set up to implement the liturgy constitution and interpret it in accordance with their own wishes. The liturgy constitution itself makes it very clear that the Council Fathers did not have the least intention 
of unleashing a, a revolution which would destroy the Roman right, as one of the experts responsible for this destruction expressed it himself. The council commanded specifically that Latin was to remain the language of the Roman right. The faithful should be able to sing or say in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the mass that pertains to them. Gregorian chant was to be given pride of place in liturgical services. The treasury of sacred music was to be preserved and fostered with great care. All liturgical rites were to be preserved in the future and fostered with great care. And there were to be no innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly required them. It is thus hardly surprising that such notable critics of the liturgical revolution as Professor Louis Salon or Father Louis Bouillet were not at all apprehensive about the liturgy constitution, seeing it as a blueprint for renewal. Even Archbishop Lefebvre had no qualms in signing it and wrote in favorable terms of the forthcoming reform to the Holy Ghost Fathers. Now I'm coming to the subject of the divided liturgy. It is clear that the post-conciliar liturgy is divided from the pre-conciliar liturgy in a number of ways. The first division derives from the very act of undertaking a radical reform of the liturgy. I have already quoted Professor Chadwick's dictum, the liturgies are not made but grow in the devotion of centuries. The commission, known as the concilium, which implemented the liturgy constitution had a very different idea and actually imagined that it could compose a liturgy which would be superior to the one that had grown up in the devotion of 15 centuries. Professor Dietrich von Hildebrand has ridiculed the very idea that the men of the second half of the 20th century could do this. Until the establishment of Archbishop Dunini's concilium, no one but the Protestant reformers had had the temerity to undertake a radical reform of the existing liturgy. It was therefore fitting that Archbishop Punini should have called upon the services of six of them to assist him in undertaking what he termed a major conquest of the Catholic Church. The Archbishop denied that the Protestant observers played an active part in the composition of the new rites, but I wrote to one of them and discovered that this was completely untrue. It is the rite of Mass that most affects the lives of the ordinary faithful, and where the liturgy of the Mass was concerned, the Concilium had no scruples whatsoever in subtracting prayers and ceremonies in previous use, prayers and ceremonies bequeathed to us by immemorial tradition. Nor did the Concilium hesitate to remodel the existing rite in the most drastic manner possible. The English Catholic bishops in 1898 had found it absolutely incredible that Protestant heretics should have done this. What would their reaction have been if told that the Catholic Mass would one day be remodeled in the most <coughs> drastic manner possible by a commission acting on behalf of the Holy See with the assistance of six Protestant heretics who had been convoked specifically in their capacity as Protestant heretics? This, to quote those English bishops once more, is a proposition for which we know of no historical foundation and which appears to us absolutely incredible. It is thus beyond dispute that the very act of remodeling the liturgy in the most drastic manner 
constitutes in itself a division or breach with our Catholic past. Uh, one cannot help recalling that the Greek word for breach or division is schism. The very act of this drastic remodeling would have been deplorable even had the result of the reform been far less reprehensible than what was eventually foisted upon us. It is, alas, hardly possible to exaggerate the reprehensibility of these reformed, or rather, revolutionized rites. I should be concerned today principally with the Mass, as it is celebrated in a typical parish today. This involves a second division, the division between the official Latin version of the Missal of Pope Paul VI, promulgated in 1970, and what takes place in our parish churches. There is often less resemblance between the celebration of Mass in most parishes today and the Latin Missal of Pope Paul VI than there is between this Mass and that of the Mass of Pope St. Pius V. To say that the typical Mass is often a travesty of the Latin Mass of Pope Paul VI does not mean that this rite of Mass is, a, is satisfactory, far from it. I consider the Latin Missal of Pope Paul VI to be inferior liturgically, spiritually, doctrinally, and ascetically to that of Pope St. Pius V. And that, of course, is an opinion that any Catholic is entitled to, uh, to hold. Obviously, if one is going to change or modify a liturgical rite, the resulting reform will either be equivalent to the previous rite, just as good, it will be worse, or it will be better. Obviously, those making the reform thought it would be better, but we are quite entitled to, to maintain that it was worse, and as I said, I consider it to be inferior liturgically, spiritually, doctrinally, and aesthetically to the Missal of Pope St. Pius V. However, the new Mass is definitely valid, it contains no heresies, and contains nothing that could be considered intrinsically harmful to the faith of the Catholic people. That it could have contained anything intrinsically harmful to the faith of the Catholic people is impossible due to what is known as the indefectibility of the Catholic Church. What is meant by the indefectibility of the Church is that the Catholic Church can never fail in the mission given to it by our Lord. This mission isn't just to teach us the truth, but to provide us with the means of holiness to enable us to live up to that truth. Now, if a liturgical rite coming from the church itself could actually harm the faithful, that would mean that the mystical body of Christ, of which the head, of course, is our Lord himself, was feeding itself poison. It would mean that our Lord was poisoning the members of his body, and to maintain that the new rite of Mass is intrinsically harmful is to maintain that our Lord is deliberately harming the members of his body, which is, is totally impossible. So the new Mass could not, per se, contain anything intrinsically harmful. But, as I said, that doesn't mean that it isn't inferior in every possible respect to the previous liturgy. But I don't intend to spend much time discussing the Latin Missal of Pope Paul VI, because this masses celebrated according to this missal are, in fact, much rarer than celebrations of the Tridentine Mass, the Mass of St. Pius V. You can see when celebrated faithfully according to the missal of 
Pope Paul VI in the Brompton Oratory and in the Oratory in Birmingham and perhaps a few other churches in London. But I'd say 99% of Catholics in England don't have access to the Mass celebrated in Latin according to the Missal of Pope Paul VI, whereas a far higher proportion have access to a Tridentine Mass. What I want to examine today is the liturgy to which the faithful are subjected each Sunday, what is actually happening in our parishes. Now, as you know, a few weeks ago, Cardinal Hume allowed a couple, well, three churches in his diocese to have a Tridentine Mass each Sunday. And he gave a statement which was published in the universe saying that the desire for the Tridentine Mass must be put into perspective and that the overwhelming majority of Catholics are perfectly contented with the new Mass as it's celebrated in their churches today. I wrote a letter to the universe saying that this was ridiculous. I didn't put it in quite those terms as they wouldn't have printed it. They didn't print it anyway, but... I said, if we're going to get down to facts, get down to the nitty-gritty, as they say in America, the overwhelming majority of Catholics don't go to Mass at all. 70% of Catholics don't go to Mass. Only 30% go now, and the number is decreasing by 30,000 a year. So it's just nonsense to say that the overwhelming majority of Catholics are satisfied with the new liturgy. And... It's also wrong to maintain that those who do go to Mass every Sunday do so because they find the new Mass preferable to the old. Uh, The very, very sad thing is that most of those who go to Mass now go because they were educated before the Council and they know it's their duty to go to Mass on Sunday and they've been taught the nature of a Mass as a sacrifice and they impose that knowledge almost artificially onto the celebration in which they're taking part. But as I said, of those people who are going, 30,000 are dropping out every year. And by the end of the century, who will be going, I don't know. In my own deanery, they did a survey among the children, thousands of children going to Catholic schools, and they concluded only 2% of them will practice their faith when they leave the secondary school. Uh, Baptisms have gone down by 50% since the council, and this is what's even more alarming, We have only 50% of the number of Catholics being baptized, and 50% of those do not get confirmed. In the bad old days of boring religious education, 92% of children who are baptized were confirmed. I'm not a mathematician, but if you... I I know Jamie Bowler has worked all this out, and it's actually far worse than it appears. When you get the figures worked out properly... It isn't just 50% of 50% being confirmed, it's it's even lower. And the number of First Communions, they're going down at such a rate that in 14 years' time there wouldn't be any if they uh, continue to decline at the rate they're declining now. And as I said, of those children who are confirmed, if 98% of them lapse before they leave school, what future does the church have in this country? But you cannot get a single bishop who will admit that anything is going wrong you might remember at the Bishop's Synod, which Father Harrison talked to you about this morning, Cardinal Hume said, we must not be deflected from the path which we have been following since the council. What would happen to him if he was managing director of any company <laughs> where every aspect of that company's business was crumbling away, where their 
customers had declined by 30% within a few years and they were losing 30,000 a year and he said we are not going to be deflected from the policies we're following. So in criticising the new mass and upholding the merits of the old, we are not flying in the face of a great pastoral renewal. There isn't any pastoral renewal. There have been no good fruits from the liturgical reform of the Second Vatican Council. If anyone here knows of any, I'd, I'd like to hear about them later. But we're not nostalgic people who are going against something which is greatly benefiting other, others. The liturgical reform has been a pastoral fiasco. Father Louis Bouillet has, has said that. Now, getting back to the new Mass as it's celebrated in our churches today, if one of our martyr priests had returned to any church in this country up to 1965, I mention that date because even though in theory the Tridentine Mass was still being used then, very many major, change, major changes had been brought into the manner of its celebration. But any one of our martyr priests would come back into a Catholic church in this country prior to 1965 could have picked up the missile and celebrated Mass without any problems whatsoever. The only problem he would have had uh, would have been if he wanted to do a sung Mass because St. Pius X had the notation changed uh, in, in the Gregorian chant and he might have gotten a muddle over the preface. But apart from that, every, practically every word and every rubric would have been identical. Now, what would one of those martyr priests think if he came into a typical Catholic parish church tomorrow morning? He would think he'd come into a Protestant church and he'd rush out of the church in horror. Actually, he'd find very little difference if he walked into many Anglican churches, as there's very little difference indeed between the new Catholic rite of Mass and the Anglican Series 3 liturgy. I've heard many, many cases, say, of French visitors who quite happily gone along to Anglican churches the whole time they've been in this country thinking they were present at the new mass. They weren't being ecumenical. They the new English mass so closely resembles the new mass as it's celebrated in France, they, they, they didn't know the difference. So, there obviously then here is a great division between our faith as expressed liturgically in the time of the English martyrs, in the time of Cardinal Newman, in the time of our parents, in the time of our own childhood, and Mass as it is celebrated today. A division definitely does exist, and it's pointless to hide it. <clears throat> For example, in my own case, I'm divided from my own parish. I don't attend Mass in my parish church, because I absolutely can't stand going to the new Mass. It actually makes me feel ill. And I travel <clears throat> many miles each Sunday to take part in a Tridentine Mass in another parish. Now, the this, this is very, very sad, because the object of the Mass isn't simply to offer public adoration to Almighty God, but it is to build up the mystical body of Christ. This is particularly true of the reception of Holy Communion. St. Augustine noted that we become what we receive. We receive the body of Christ in Holy Communion and we become the mystical body of Christ. Thus the Mass, which should be the means and a symbol of unity, 
has become a means and a symbol of disunity among Catholics. And this disunity doesn't exist simply between Catholics who attend the Tridentine Mass and those who attend the New Mass, but it exists among those who attend the New Mass. Because many Catholics today attend Mass in other parishes, so perhaps they find their own parish too conservative, or they find their own parish too liberal or too progressive. I'm sure many of the people who go to the Brompton Oratory each Sunday are refugees from other parishes. Some of you might have wrote read a pamphlet I wrote called The Barbarians Have Taken Over, which starts off with a description of the situation of a parish, the parish of Christ the King in Kansas City in the United States, where a very good, very conservative parish priest, he didn't have the Mass in Latin, he had a straightforward new Mass, but he had people still kneeling for communion, the altar rails were there, the tabernacle was on the altar, there were no extraordinary ministers of communion, no sign of peace, no offertory procession, all these things are optional. And his mass attendance went up over a period of about four years from 2,000 to 5,000. Other parish priests complained to the bishop. So what did the bishop do? The bishop dismissed him <laughs> instead of telling the other parish priests to do the same. So even within people who attend the new mass, there are divisions. People have to find a mass which they find tolerable rather than go to mass in their own parish. And as I said, this is very, very sad because the Mass should be a means of building up the unity of Catholics, not bringing disunity among them. So let, let, us, then, let us make a brief examination of a typical celebration of the new Mass as celebrated in a typical parish today, which is, as I said, the sign of so much division within the Church today. Now, I hope this is going to work out on two separate sheets of paper. I've made a note of a prayer or a ceremony in the Tridentine Mass, and then the corresponding, or in most cases, uncorresponding, ceremony in the New Mass. Both begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But from then on, there is a radical divergence. The Tridentine Mass, think for a moment, how does it begin? In Troibo ad altari Dei. I will go unto the altar of God. A priest ascends steps. He goes up to the altar of God to offer a solemn sacrifice. This phrase is repeated several times in the Psalm Eudicame. What does the priest do in the new mass? He greets the people. We're going to find that the people have become the focus of attention in the new mass <coughs> as celebrated typically today. In the Tridentine mass, we have two separate confiteors. The separate confiteor by the priest was very important as it sets him apart from the people. And one of the greatest defects of the new mass, even in Latin, is the lack of distinction between the priest and the people. In the entire missal of Pope Paul VI, apart from the Priorate Fratres, which, by the way, Archbishop Bunini's concilium tried to abolish, and it he, he was forced to put it back again by Pope Paul VI. Apart from that, there are really no prayers at all which distinguish between the priest and the people, except in the Roman canon, where it frequently referred, well, not frequently, there are three or four references to the priests separated from the people. If you had a complete celebration of the new Mass using canon two, 
That Mass could be considered as a con-celebration by everyone present, which, of course, is, is what Protestants think of it as. So, this separate... You see, people said this was an unnecessary duplication, the two confiteors, but it isn't. It sets the priest apart from the people. Now, then the people make their confiteor, and what does the priest do at the end of it? He gives them absolution. What do we do in the new Mass? I'll move over to this sheet. Priest and people say one of a number of penitential rites and ask together for God's forgiveness. There's no absolution of the people by the priest. All of them are brothers and sisters, and they ask for it together. There's nothing heretical in that. We are all brothers and sisters. The priest is our brother and sister. But this plays down the separate sacrificial role of the priest. In the Tridentine Mass, there'll probably be a prayer a lot of you have never even noticed. And it won't bring anything to you, but look in your missiles afterwards. It's called the prayer Alpha Nobis, and it refers to the priest entering into the Holy of Holies. That's, uh, we look over here, that's point three. In the new Mass, it's been subtracted. Uh, the fourth part, there's then an invocation of saints, particularly the saints whose relics are here. That's here in the altar stone, as you all know, in a traditional Catholic altar. A little section has been cut out in the middle, and a stone with the relics of saints or martyrs is placed in it. And these are invoked. In the new Mass, it's being subtracted. And this is hardly surprising, because in the new Mass, in the new liturgy, you don't have to have an altar stone. Traditionally, you had to have an altar built of natural stone. You can now have a wooden one, if you like. Or one of those hideous concrete things that they have. It doesn't have to be an altar of natural stone now. And you can have an altar stone in it if you wish, but that's optional. So it's hardly surprising that they don't make any reference to the saints who are here, because they may well not be. Uh, much of the liturgy of the, uh, of the word is, is very similar. Uh, but even here, what I find reprehensible, though in, in itself it isn't, but it's part of a general pattern, is having the lay readers to read uh, the epistle of the first lesson. You see, once again, a lay man, or more frequently a lay woman, goes into the sanctuary to read the lesson. In my school, 99% of the time, it's the girls who, who read the lessons, because the boys don't want to. The boys seem to get embarrassed. And, and they, I don't want to sound a male chauvinist. I'm accused of being that in my school. But it's just, that's just stating a fact. The girls love, little girls love getting up any time they can, anything that will get them attention. But... <laughs> but anyway, so once again, you see... The, the role of the priest has been diminished. In the Brompton Oratory, of course, they don't do that, uh, at least not at the sung Latin Mass. Now, we come, of course, after that to the creed. They're this ridiculous, we believe. Oh. I wasn't, uh, I'm not going to spend much time today talking about the errors of translation in the new mass, that, that, that is an added defect. Uh, I'd, I'd be going on the whole day if I did that. You might have known of Christopher Monckton when he was editor of the universe. He thought the bishops would be very pleased because he got letter after letter complaining about the new mass and the translations. 
So he took a week of his own holiday and went right through the missile, that's the new missile, comparing the Latin with the English, and he found over 400 mistakes, some of them very, very serious indeed, and he wrote about this to the universe, and he had the whole fury of the uh, bishops and the liturgical establishment came down upon him from that. For that, his worst mistake, of course, was to have a poll when the Pope was having his inquiry about the Tridentine Mass. He genuinely thought the bishops would be pleased to find out what the people were thinking. And (laughs) as you remember, something like 10,000 people voted for the Tridentine Mass and only about 2,000 for the new one, and he was sacked through, through that. Uh, it was mainly the influence of Bishop Lindsay. I'm glad to say he wrote about that in the Evening Standard a few weeks ago and stated in public that he had been sacked because of that. But anyway, we'll leave the mistranslations in the Creed and the rest of the Mass and we'll get on to the or- offertory. Now, the traditional offertory pr- prayers are replete with sacrificial language. The, the prayer, if I had time, I'd read it to you. This is the prayer, Sushipe Sancte Pater. Uh, Father Pius Parsh, who was a very, very prominent figure in the liturgical movement, he said, this prayer contains a whole world of dogmatic truth. You could write a whole treatise on the Mass just based upon this prayer, Sushipe Sancti Pater. In the new offertory, by the way, Archbishop Unini wanted no new offertory at all. He totally abolished it, but uh, he was forced to put in a few prayers, most of which consist of a Jewish grace, actually, this all these prayers about the work of human hands, it's, it's just a, a, a Jewish grace. This is probably a very beautiful grace. But, and there's only one brief in the entire offertory in the New Mass, there's only one brief reference to sacrifice. Though, of course, we must be glad that there is one reference to sacrifice there. Now, of course, the offertory is not essential to the validity of the Mass. Not having all those offertory prayers doesn't mean that the consecration in the new Mass is any less valid than the consecration in the old Mass, you see, but it's all part of an overall pattern. And also, saying these prayers, once again, set the priest apart from the people. In both rites, I'm glad to say, we still have the Arati Fratres, although, as I mentioned, the Concilium did remove it and it was placed back again. Then we come to the canon of the Mass, As I've said to you, only in the Roman canon is a distinction made between the priest and the people. But in the new Eucharistic prayers 3 and 4, there is satisfactory and adequate sacrificial terminology. The Eucharistic prayer 2 only has a prayer to offering this bread and this cup, which actually really strict, well-informed Protestants would find that unacceptable. But as I said, this... Eucharistic prayer, Eucharistic prayer number two, what people call the mini-canon, that could be used by people who believe the entire congregation is concelebrating. But now we've got to the very heart of the Mass. We'll examine some of the differences between the new Mass and the Tridentine Mass, some of the divisions, you see, which are not mandated in the Roman Missal of Pope Paul VI. Some of you might have very politely refrained from interrupting me when I said it could contain nothing harmful by saying, what about having mass facing the people? What about having a table instead of an altar? What about communion in the hand? What about extraordinary ministers? Not one of those practices is even mentioned in the Latin Missal of Pope Paul VI. Where communion in the hand is concerned, the discipline of the Roman rite to which we belong is that communion should be placed upon the tongue. Every country where you have communion in the hand 
An indult has been given, actually it's called a rescript, giving permission for this as a deviation from the norm. It's, I often uh, recommend people to read the novels of Kafka. I don't know if anyone here has read a novel by Kafka, because I think they're the only books which adequately describe the state of the church today, apart from George Orwell's 1984. Uh, <laughs> His books, well, they describe a world which is completely, it's just completely insane, and you, you would go insane from trying to cope with it. But as I was saying, communion on the tongue is the norm, but I say probably in 99% of parishes you have communion in the hand, which is a, a deviation from the norm. But officially, communion on the tongue is the norm, so that, hasn't, that is a harmful practice, but it hasn't been imposed by the Pope. Because God would not let the Pope impose a practice on the people that could harm them. In a weakness, he can give way and allow something as a concession. But communion in the hand has never been imposed. It's a concession. So let us then look at a few points now as we're imagining we're seeing the canon of the Mass. In a celebration of the Tridentine Mass, you have the priest going up, as I said, to a beautiful altar not with his back to the people, but facing the east. From the very beginning of the church, in east and west, mass has always been celebrated facing the east. This was a break with the practice of the synagogue and of Jewish worship. Jews, when they worship, turned towards the temple in Jerusalem. Christians broke with that by turning to the heavenly Jerusalem, represented by the east. The rising sun was a symbol of the resurrection. It is believed that when our Lord returns again in glory, he will come from the east. And there are beliefs that he will return during the celebration of mass, so that people will be turned towards the east, ready to welcome him. So there's very beautiful symbolism in this. That's why the reformers took the altars away from the east wall, and they reversed it, because they would not allow their communion services to be celebrated facing the east, because the east symbolized sacrifice. So in the new Mass, priests and people have turned in on each other. It's become introspective. That is a very, very important psychological break with the past. And even while the Tridentine Mass was still being used, that changed the entire ethos of the Mass. And then when you have these dreadful tables... Beautiful altars, literally paid for with the pennies of the poor, poor Irish immigrants who went without food to pay these altars. They've been smashed up. Some of you might have seen the picture. I think it's in that pamphlet I have. Uh, the barbarians have taken over of a bishop in New Zealand who had a bull. It was the 100th anniversary of his church, the centenary of his church. And he brought a bulldozer into the church to smash down the altar. And he asked the people to give him vast sums of money to, to renew the church, to celebrate its centenary. As you know, one of the first things the Protestant reformers did, particularly the Bishop Nicholas Wrigley, was to have altars destroyed and tables put in there. Because he said an altar is to offer sacrifice upon and a table is to eat a meal upon. So we now in most churches, technically they're altars, but they look like tables. And on them, instead of the priest, as we said, facing the east, he faces the people. 
Now, most of the canon in the Tridentine Mass is said inaudibly, not silently, but inaudibly, which enhances the solemnity of the occasion and the role of the priest as the person who is actually offering the sacrifice. As Pope Pius XII said in Mediata Dei, the priest doesn't offer sacrifice as representative of the people, but as representative of Christ, in the person of Christ. Obviously, in a way, he acts on behalf of the people, and we associate ourselves with him. But when he is up there on the altar saying Mass, we are really looking <coughs> at Christ. Christ is saying that Mass and using the priest as his instrument. Cranmer would not have anything said in his entire communion service which the people could not hear. And we have now followed that practice. In itself, there's nothing wrong with the people hearing it. It's not, you can't say it's intrinsically bad, but once again it detracts from the role of the priest. In the Eastern Rites, by the way, the most solemn parts of the Eucharistic liturgy take place behind the iconostasis. The people can't even see the priest, let alone hear him. So if people like the late Father Clifford Howell and similar liturgists, they said it's contrary to the nature of the Mass for the people not to be able to hear what is taking place. Well, that's a gratuitous insult to all the Eastern Rites, the Orthodox Churches and the Catholic Eastern Rites, because the people certainly can't hear everything that's taking place then, nor could we, for at least a thousand years. Again, in the Tridentine Mass, the priest says it in Latin. In the New Mass, it's almost invariably said in the vernacular. You might have read what Dom Guéranger had to say about that. He said, one of the greatest desires of the enemies of the church is to abolish the use of the Latin language. And he said, once they do that, they will have come very close to their object of destroying the church. And wherever... It's interesting in history, wherever the vernacular has been introduced into the liturgy, those churches have eventually gone into schism. You look at all the Orthodox churches where the popes made concessions. But uh, apart from that, once you get away from having Latin as the norm, you, come, you open the way open for all these appalling mistranslations. And once again, you see, Latin belonged to the very ethos of the Mass as everybody knew it and experienced it. So simply by having it in the vernacular, the whole ethos of the Mass was changed. Let's come on to the distribution of Holy Communion. In the Tridentine Mass, when communion is given, you see a very clear distinction between the priest and the people. Pope John Paul II has said that to touch and distribute the sacred species is a privilege of the ordained. This has always been the tradition in the Roman Church for about 1,500 years. It's true that at one time communion was given in the hand. But, you see, traditional Catholics believe in development. We believe in liturgical development. And as it, reverence for the sacred species increased, it came to the point where only the priest could touch and distribute the host. So that's development. So actually it's the progressives who are against liturgical uh, development by insisting that we go back. So the practice of the host being placed on the tongue is an immemorial tradition. And as we said, naturally, I'm sure if our Lord appeared in this room now, every one of us would kneel down. People would kneel down to receive our Lord. If anyone had said to one of you or to one of your priests before the council, let us abolish 
or make optional every single sign of reverence to the Blessed Sacrament, they would have thought you were crazy. But that has happened. Afterwards, I'd be glad if one person could tell me a single sign of reverence towards the Blessed Sacrament involved in Holy Communion that hasn't been abolished or made optional. You think of it, only a priest could touch the chalice or the, the sacred vessels. Only a priest could distribute communion. You had to kneel to receive Holy Communion. You had to receive it on your tongue. The priest kept his thumb and forefinger together from the moment of consecration so the least part of couldn't fall. Now you get them running down from their altar to their table, shaking hands with everyone in sight. How about what? But, but anyway, as, as they don't use a communion plate uh, when communion is distributed usually now, I was going to say when they rush down shaking people's hands, you could lose particles of the host, but uh, no precautions are taken to obviate this during the distribution of Holy Communion anymore. Now you can have Holy Communion standing in the hand from an extraordinary minister of communion, and anyone can touch the sacred vessels. So every one of those signs of reverence has, has been abolished and made optional, including putting thumb and forefinger together. It's incredible. How did it happen? How did people suddenly find themselves standing? I just want to mention very quickly, there is no such thing in the Catholic Church as a minister of communion or a special minister of communion. There are only extraordinary ministers of communion, and they're only meant to be used in the most extraordinary circumstances where you can have a genuinely old and infirm priest who perhaps would not be capable of giving out Holy Communion to a large congregation. But, but I knew of such a priest and he used to sit down and the people came up to him. I can't think of a single instance in this country where you need these extraordinary ministers. But again... In most parishes now, it would be extraordinary not to find them. You see, as again, we're entering the world of Kafka. Well, you see, these practices, all of them completely alter the ethos of the Mass. In the Tridentine Mass, of course, Holy Communion is given under, only under one kind. Increasingly now in the new Mass, it's given under both kinds. Again, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. But what from the, is important from the Catholic view is that Protestants maintain that it is intrinsically wrong to give communion under only one kind. And while they maintain this, by going back to giving the challenge to the laity, we're conceding in a way that they are right. Another reason for the, all the efforts being made to make communion under both kinds the norm is the so-called meal symbolism of the Mass. Many liturgists consider the Mass now to be primarily a meal. And they say, what meal do you go to where the host gives his guests nothing to drink? So that's one of the reasons for that coming back. Well, towards the end of the Mass is a very, very important prayer called the Plechet Tibi. Look it up in your missals later, and you'll see why it was totally unacceptable to the Protestant reformers who removed it from all their liturgies. And you won't be surprised to find that it has been subtracted from the new mass. We then have, this is the 16th point I've made, I could have made about 50. The 16th point was the last gospel. Who could ever get tired of hearing the last gospel? Why was it, did the good of the church genuinely and certainly require that it be abolished? Of course it didn't, but it went. Then we had the prayers for Russia. Well, they, they weren't actually part of the mass, but uh, 
they've been abolished. And it's interesting, the prayer for St. Michael to keep the devil down in hell, because when we stop saying that, he certainly appears to be out and busy. But if time permitted, I could now, don't worry, I'm not going to do it, I could now go right through the order of Mass and make another series of comparisons. I could make a series of comparisons of prayers which Thomas Cranmer removed from the Serum Liturgy in this country. And the Serum Liturgy, in all important respects, was almost identical to the Tridentine Mass. And you would find that the list of prayers and ceremonies which I have said have been subtracted from the Tridentine Mass, they were subtracted by Thomas Cranmer. I have actually in my book, Pope Paul's New Mass, I've got them in columns. And uh, it's almost frightening the extent to which the changes made by Archbishop Bunini correspond to the changes made by Thomas Cranmer. Catholics and Anglicans who are ecumenical, or ecumeniacal as I prefer to put it, they're absolutely delighted about the rapprochement between the two liturgies, the Anglican liturgy and the Catholic liturgy. But it can hardly be denied that the more closely our worship resembles that of Protestantism, the greater the extent to which we are divided from the Catholic tradition and from our forebears in the faith. I'm now going to mention very briefly four other sources of division brought about by the new Mass. One, of course, will go back to the vernacular again. Now, I'm sure everyone here experienced how before we had the new Mass, when we went to a place like Lourdes, or if we went on holiday to Spain, everyone could just go to Mass together. Uh, I remember the first time I took my children to a holiday on Spain, in Spain, we went to see about the Masses on Sunday, and they had Masses in about six different languages. They had them in English, French, German, Spanish, Catalan, and something else. So, and obviously if people had turned up, say, for a nine o'clock Mass, and it wasn't the one in their own language, they weren't going to go away and come back, so they went in and understood nothing, which seems to obviate the whole point of the exercise. And it's a Lord now... Many people have told me how you see little groups of people rushing about from altar to altar trying to find a mass they can understand. So there's another division here. The Catholics from every country have been divided from each other. They can no longer worship together. Another division caused is between what is between the Reformed Liturgy and the Second Vatican Council because in many respects the Reformed Liturgy is in flagrant contradiction towards to what the Second Vatican Council ordered. So that's another division. It's in disobedience to the Council. Another division is with that of the liturgical movement. Those who've read the books of some of the major proponents of the liturgical movement, priests like uh, Dom Cabral and Father Pius Pasch, will find what they wanted to do mainly was to have the full potential of the existing liturgy used. Now, there is no doubt at all that a liturgical reform was needed at the time of the Council. Most Catholics had no experience of the Catholic liturgy beyond one low Mass on Sunday each week. Very few of them ever went to a sung Mass, and, and services like Vespers or Compline were, were really unknown to almost everyone except the clergy. It would be rather like 
suppose if we take the works of Shakespeare, people kept reading Twelfth Night over and over and over again and never read Hamlet or Macbeth or King Lear. Twelfth Night is an admirable play, but uh, you really would be depriving yourself of great richness if you ignored all the rest of Shakespeare's plays and his poems. Well, what the liturgical movement wanted to do was to open out the whole riches of the Catholic liturgy to the people. They didn't want it abolished, destroyed, mutilated, but that was what happened. So there is a division between what we've got and the whole papally approved liturgical movement of this century. And now a very, very serious division is opened up. The closer our liturgy gets to Protestant liturgies, the farther it takes us from the Orthodox churches, the only churches with whom there's any realistic possibility of us achieving union. I, I was talking a couple of years ago to an Orthodox priest, a priest of the Russian Orthodox Church, who'd gone into a Catholic church to Mass, and he said he walked out. The moment the consecration had taken place, he said, I just couldn't believe the priest of the people in that church really believed in the real presence. And he said, I never want to go to another Catholic Mass again. If any of you have been to an Orthodox or an Eastern Rite liturgy, you'll understand why. I mean, to In Russia, there's a big return to the Orthodox faith among the younger people, and it's because they've kept the liturgy absolutely unchanged. Young people who've been brought up as communists go into perhaps a requiem in a cathedral, and they're transformed in a moment. I mean, who would be transformed by going into a typical English parish church today and hearing the banjos and the guitars and these pathetic little hymns? It's, it's, it's just so sad. So that's another very, very serious division. And I'm going to conclude now, you'll be glad to know, with the most serious division at all. It's the division to which all these changes in the ethos of the way Mass is celebrated has been leading up. Now... In the Tridentine Mass and all the traditional rites of Mass in East or West, they are quite clearly God-centered rituals. They are quite clearly solemn sacrifices offered to Almighty God. The liturgy of the Catholic Church has meaning and significance only insofar as it is directed to Almighty God. Until Archbishop Bunini's concilium began its work of mutilation, only one criterion had governed the manner of celebrating Mass in all the traditional liturgies of East and West. Does this prayer, does this gesture, does this ceremony contribute to the honor and glory of Almighty God in whose honor and in whose name the sacrifice is offered? No one from whatever religions whatsoever who is present at any celebration of Mass in any traditional liturgical rite could doubt that he was at a solemn sacrifice. No one from any religion whatsoever who is present at a typical parish celebration today could possibly imagine that he was present at a solemn sacrifice unless he was informed of the fact. And in most cases, even though he might accept that what was taking place was a sacrifice, it could hardly be described as a solemn sacrifice. To a large extent, the celebration of, of Mass has been changed from a celebration in honor of Almighty God to a celebration of man himself. Cardinal Ratzinger has deplored the fact 
that in all too many cases today, the congregation comes together to celebrate itself, which he points out in reality means that it celebrates nothing at all. All too often the Mass has become an expression or has become a means of self-expression, a means of entertainment, a fun event. In the United States, and what happens in the United States will eventually happen over here, they're bringing in clowns and dancing girls to liven it up. Now, only last year, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote these very, very profound words. We ought to get back to the dimension of the sacred in the liturgy. The liturgy is not a festivity. It is not a meeting for the purpose of having a good time. It is of no importance that the parish priest has cudgeled his brains to come up with suggestive ideas or imaginative novelties. The liturgy is what makes the thrice holy God present amongst us. It is the burning bush. It is the alliance of God with man in Jesus Christ who has died and risen again. The grandeur of the liturgy does not rest upon the fact that it offers an interesting entertainment, but in rendering tangible the totally other whom we are not capable of summoning. He comes because he wills. In other words, the essential in the liturgy is the mystery, which is realized in the common ritual of the church. All the rest diminishes it. Men experiment with it in lively fashion, but find themselves deceived when the mystery is transformed in, into distraction, when the chief actor in the liturgy is not the living God, but the priest or the liturgical director. Now, where must the blame for this change in the ethos of the Mass from God to man come? Earlier on in my talk, I praised the liturgy constitution of the Second Vatican Council. Now, I must blame it because in one of the directives it states that in the celebration of Mass, nothing must come before the active participation of the people. When the fathers voted for that, they didn't notice the significance. But it said the active participation of the people must come before all else. And that short statement has been used to justify a change in the ethos of the Mass from a celebration worshipping Almighty God to a celebration and glorification of man. Now, there are two solutions to the problem. The first one, Cardinal Ratzinger would probably favour, which would be to try and get the new Mass celebrated as closely as possible to the rubrics in the Missal of Pope Paul VI. But that would not work. The Missal of Pope Paul VI, even its Latin version, has so many options and alternatives that you could never... If it was always celebrated exactly as it is in the oratory of the Roman canon, people kneeling for communion, the altar rails there, the altar still there facing the east, no offertory procession, no extraordinary ministers, the faith of the people would not be too greatly harmed. But that hasn't happened. If it hasn't happened up to now, how could it suddenly start happening? Secondly, even the new mass is celebrated in the oratory is, as I maintained earlier, inferior to the Tridentine mass liturgically, doctrinally, spiritually, and aesthetically. That isn't good enough for God. For God, we must only have what is the very, very best. 
I think we have only one solution to our problem, and that is to work for the complete restoration of the Tridentine Mass throughout the entire Roman Rite. This is the form of Mass that Father Faber described as the most beautiful thing this side of heaven. This is the form of Mass that Cardinal Newman said he could attend forever and never be tired. I'd like to give you a little quotation from Father Adrian Fortescue, our greatest liturgical historian. He said the Tridentine Mass goes back without essential change to the age when it first developed out of the oldest liturgy of all. It is still redolent of that liturgy of the days when Caesar ruled the world and thought he could stamp out the faith of Christ, when our fathers met together before dawn and sung a hymn to Christ as God. The final result of our inquiry is that in spite of unsolved problems, in spite of later changes, there is not a in Christendom another right so venerable as ours. There is not in Christendom another right so venerable as ours. So how did anybody dare to just throw it away, put it in the waste paper basket? How did they dare to do that? And we should work for its restoration. We're told that this is the age of the laity. Then let us act upon an exhortation addressed to the laity by St. Athanasius in the 4th century, when the cause of tradition also appeared to be beyond hope. But the cause of tradition must prevail because tradition is the legacy of the divine founder of our church, who has promised that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. But a great mystery concerning the mystical body of Christ is that our Lord now uses the members of that body to do his work. St. Therese of Avila made the, the very simple but very profound statement, and si profound things are often very simple, that God has, now has no hands but ours to do his work, no feet but ours to go upon his errands of mercy. So the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but they won't prevail because of the efforts of the members of the mystical body guided by their head to prevent this happening. So, I hope that we will heed this exhortation of St. Athanasius and spare no effort at all to work for the restoration of the Tridentine Mass. Things are happening now people had not even dared to hope for a few years ago. Who would have thought that Cardinal Hume and other bishops would actually be allowing Sunday Masses regularly in London once again? What he's done so far is pathetic. But it's happening, it's a beginning. These are the words of St. Athanasius. The Church has not just recently been given order and statutes. They were faithfully and soundly bestowed upon it by the Fathers. Nor has the faith only just been established, but it has come to us from the Lord through his disciples. May what has been preserved in the churches from the beginning to the present day not be abandoned in our time. May what has been entrusted into our keeping not be embezzled by us. Brethren, as custodians of God's mysteries, let yourself be roused into action on seeing all this despoiled by others. Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry I went on too long, as usual.
Thank you very much, Michael. I've heard you on several other occasions, and shall I say you're in good form today? Uh, So now, I think John is getting ready to bowl questions. Um, Sue Coote, no doubt, might be able to answer any specific things relating to what is happening currently as far as the Latin Mass Society is concerned, but I imagine basically the questions will be more to Michael um, in terms of his delivery today. So, father at the back there, and then, okay. Do you want to? Oh, no, no, I'll stand up. This is quite a relaxed day for me today. Yesterday I took 34 children all around Hampton Court for the day, so. <laughs> no, it was a, actually, it was very sunny. I was dreading what would have happened if it had poured with rain. Uh, well, I, could have cut, brought the, I could have brought them all up to Sue Cooch. She lives in East Molesley. <laughs> I was very pleased and annoyed because the lady teaches in my school, they think I, no, they get very annoyed how everything always turns out well for me in the end. It was raining, all, it rained every day up till Friday, and it was a beautiful sunny day on Friday. They said it's happened again for him. <laughs> well, you might like the words of a priest to kick off with. First of all, I'll tell you a funny story. I'm an ex-Anglican, and I was what was called an Anglo-Catholic in those days. And if one went to another church, uh, where, where you might start off by saying, what do you do here, Father? And alas, it's getting just like that in the Catholic Church now. It's a great shame. I'd commend your reading a book by a celebrated Anglican, uh, uh, E.L. Maskell, Christ the Christian.